I look at death and Bitcoin both as these incredibly empowering tools for humanity. If we can all recognize as the finite nature of our time, to have that representation of our life force energy be controlled by people who just print it out of thin air and basically say that that thing is worthless. Like that trans, when you think about it at a deeper level, that translates into our time is worthless. Our energy is worthless. Our life is worthless. Welcome to another episode of Light with Bitcoin, where we focus on the personal transformations through the lens of Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this content and want to support me, you can stream some stats to me on platforms like Fountain, and I look forward to hear your feedback on the show, and we'll read out some of the comments in future episodes. We appreciate the support on the mission of shining lights on the human side of Bitcoin. Today, our guest will be joining us is Irene Crawford, aka Des and Bitcoin on Twitter. Irene is an end-to-life doula and a Bitcoiner from Canada, currently living and traveling through Central America. Her podcast, Decentralizing Death, is an exploration of how the fiat monetary system has completely distorted our relationship to death and dying, and how we may be able to utilize the principles of decentralization in order to reclaim the sacred in the end-of-life transition. Irene, welcome to the show. Thank you. You have a very unique career choice, a death doula. Can you walk us through a little bit um, what is a death doula? Death doulas are also known as end-of-life doulas. Um, I tend to refer to myself as a death doula because I don't think, personally, I don't feel that we need to soften the the word or the experience of death, but end-of-life doula helps other people to feel more comfortable with it. But one of the most common ways and the area that that I specialize in is end of life planning. If you are granted the time um, to kind of wrap up the things that you want to do on this planet in terms of relationship or legacy, whatever the case may be, if you're given that time to do that, then an end of life plan just helps you kind of think through all of the things that you may want to accomplish before you die, and then how you would like things to go um, during and after your death. So end of life doulas do a lot of support in the planning process. Um, And then we also companion the dying as they move through the, the physical act, like I call it act of dying as they physically move through that. And we also support the caregivers, which I think is something that, um, I think is it's something that's really important for people to know because often as, um, a child of a parent or even a sibling or, you know, whatever relation, maybe even as a best friend, we may be, called upon to act as a caregiver or to act as a support person for our loved one. And we may feel completely unprepared for that role. So end of life doulas do a lot of work in supporting those people who then support their loved one. Oftentimes, you know, a person would choose someone that they know to support them as opposed to someone that they don't know um, who they also need to pay. (laughs) Um, So that's a that's a major part for for us as well. And then also the after um, like processing grief and and how we um, can honor our loved ones and move on with our lives after they pass. What led to the decision of becoming a death doula in the first place? I think like most. Canadians, we just didn't talk about death. We, I went to some funerals. It felt super weird. I had no idea what happened between, you know, the time that grandma went into the hospital until I saw her in her casket. You know, there was just this big blank space that just energetically felt really weird to me. Um, and then, so I can't say that I have this you know, deep spiritual connection with death throughout my life. But about 10 years ago, I became a yoga teacher. So with 
yoga comes, you know, the studying of, of Buddhist philosophy and the impermanence of life and letting go and um, how everything is cyclical. So I became more comfortable with the idea of, of impermanence through yoga. And then I think like six or seven years ago, uh, my cat, who was my little soulmate, and I'm not afraid to say it, but uh, my little soulmate cat, he died in my arms at home. And I've worked with animals most of my life and I've, I've been involved or I've been present in a lot of euthanasias, but I had never, I had never experienced a natural death with any living thing, uh, you know, human or animal. So it was such a profound experience for me. And I couldn't help but but, you know, kind of zoom out and look at myself. I think I was maybe 35. I'm 43 now. And I couldn't help but think of how strange it was that I was 35 years old and I had never borne witness to an actual natural death. And I just kind of filed that away as something that I thought was rather odd. And so I think it's at that point that death itself kind of entered my reality. And then it just kind of marinated for five years. <laughs> um, and then on Facebook, I just started, started seeing these ads pop up for an end of life doula certification through Douglas college in Vancouver. And it kept popping up, popping up and, you know, timing, whatever. And then COVID happened. So it was kind of the perfect time to, um, just dive into some schooling and do some stuff from home. Telling people that you're a death doula, what are some of the common questions you get? <laughs> I think, well, I think, you know, the first question that you asked me, what is an end of life doula? I mean, most people don't even have never even heard of an end of life doula before. So, um, it's kind of like explaining to people when they ask you, what is Bitcoin? <laughs> you know, you kind of, um, <laughs> there's many, many different ways to answer that question. So yeah, being a death doula and a Bitcoiner, I'm constantly answering questions, which, which I quite like. I think one of the common misconceptions, um, from people is there's an idea that thinking about death and talking about death, it's a negative subject, you know, like some of my coworkers in the past would say, Oh, you know, you're such a negative person because you talk about death. And I think first and foremost, it would be really helpful if we just remove that idea that talking about death is negative. I mean, death is a truth. <laughs> it is a reality. Um, and that's why I talk about this idea of death honesty there is a big death positivity movement out there, and it's actually quite common amongst uh, end-of-life doulas and grief counselors. But, I, you know, I don't think we need to be overly positive about death. I, I, I'm certainly not looking forward to not being on this earth anymore. You know, I don't feel optimistic about it necessarily, but I think it would really serve every person to accept death as a truth, as a reality. And I just want to create spaces like this, where it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to ask questions about it. It's okay to say that it's going to happen. And I think maybe the trickiest aspect of all of this is that nobody dies and then comes back and tells everyone how you're supposed to do it. Right. So even yeah. though I work in this area, I haven't died. Like I'm no expert if you want to look at it from that, from, from that angle. So, I mean, we're all just kind of out here doing our best. And, and I think that's where doulas come in, um, in this particular role is that, you know, there's, there we don't know how we're supposed to do this. So whatever the person seeking support wants, that's what we're here to do because we don't have the answers. Nobody does. Something you said were really profound. You said, when you brush your teeth, say to yourself, today is a good day to die. 
why I say this, and um, what does this very little phrase that you say to yourself do in in our daily life? Well, having you you saying that reminds me that I should do that more often. <laughs> um, it's just a way of recognizing the truth that this may be your last day. And if it is, what do you still need to do in order to be at peace with the idea that it, that it might be your last day? You know, do you need to call your brother and apologize for not coming to dinner last week or whatever, you know, whatever, um, the unfinished, unfinished business might be. We're often caught up in the past or caught up in the future. And again, a lot of Buddhist teaching is to be in the present as much as you can. And I think that contemplating the impermanence of life, again, even though it might sound counterintuitive, for me, it it just helps me to feel gratitude when things seem really routine and really mundane. You know, if you, if you wake up in the morning, again, brushing your teeth, it's like, Oh, this is something I do, you know, once, twice, three times a day. Um, it seems really routine. It seems really mundane, but wow, I could have, I could have died last night and I might not be standing here brushing my teeth at all. I think if you avoid death, you avoid life. I just, I don't think you get the full, rich experience of life if you are avoiding one again one of the truths of life i think most people feel fairly isolated and fairly desperate for connection and i think that death is actually something that connects all of us it's it's a common ground for every single not just person but plant animal <laughs> inanimate object even you know we all at some point die. So I think that that helps in terms of recognizing our place in this whole, whatever this is, you know, this cosmic soup of existence. Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> That's one of my least favorite questions for the reason that I never, even from a very young age, like I never guaranteed that I had a future. And I don't know why. I don't know why. I always have this mindset. Maybe it's just mm. this deep root of pessimist pessimism of, of who I am. Like I'm, I am a fairly positive person, but I, I do feel like my core is kind of, it's kind of sad. It's on the pessimistic side. It's on the unexpecting side and I'll make the most of whatever, you know, universe set me up to, but I won't get myself excited about things because you're never there until you're there. And between now and then, anything can happen. I've been kind of practicing this kind of mantra in the in the past few days as I was uh, preparing for this interview. Like when I was crossing the, the street, I was kind of quietly saying to myself, today is a good day to die. I think what this mantra is really powerful is that I've already have such a mindset where I anticipate it. But if I have to say out loud, today is a good day to die, then the, the urgency is even, even more so. And how I love about it is that a lifetime, we say a lifetime, we say a lifetime is a long time, but a lifetime is made of every day. It's the, it's the sum of days. So if we live each day with the principle of how can I minimize regret? How can I um, live, live to the fullest? then there's, as you put it, there's less work to do towards the end because you're, you're taking care of yourself. You're taking care of your life through the, the, the experience while it's happening. Uncomfortable, I have to say, to really visualize what it could be like. Um, but time and time again, I get reminded that the sooner we get to form a relationship with this with ease, the sooner we can start to truly live. So this is the line of work you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people carry this existential fear of death without really being aware of it. Um, and I just think of all of the ways in which that is, 
energetically draining. You know, you, you give some of your life force energy to this fear of time running out or not having enough, even if you're not fully conscious of it. I think it's something that we all kind of carry inside of us. So, um, like I said at the beginning, I think the more that we can just think about what is real, know that this is actually going to happen, and then what are my priorities? And I think those priorities, I know those priorities change as you go through life. I know that if I was in my 20s thinking today is a good day to die, I would probably have a different set of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the things that you really want to do, I would have a different, a different idea of what that is. In my 30s, I would have a different idea. In my 40s, I have a much different idea and a much simpler idea. And I think of this quote, I forget who said it, but it's something along the lines of people won't remember you for what you do. They remember you for how you make them feel. If I died today, the world would just go on as per usual. I mean, nothing is really going to stop. Nothing's really going to change if I'm not here anymore. But I do think that I do think that the love I put into the world, I do think that that has an impact, maybe not in a real tangible sort of a way, but in more of a universal consciousness sort of a way. Like, how do I contribute? Because I think all humans are just a representation of this one universal consciousness. And maybe this is where like the psychedelic questions can come in, but um so I have my life, you know, I have the things that I want to accomplish, but a lot of that is tied to my ego. Like a lot of that is who I believe myself to be, who my family believes me to be, who my friends believe me to be, and what I think society expects of me as a person. So there's that. But what brings me a lot of ease and a lot of comfort is to zoom out and go, okay, that is, that is true. You know, who I am and the roles that I fulfill on this planet are important. However, you know, what happens after I die? Where does my energy go? Where does my consciousness go? And it's my personal belief that we just go back to the one, this singularity, whatever you, I don't care if you call it God. I don't care if you call it source, universe, love, whatever. I think it's just different names for all of the same thing. And what can I do to contribute to that? And I think love is it. Love is the answer. So if I'm crossing the street and I'm thinking today is a good day to die, how do I cross that street with more love? How do I brush my teeth with more love? How do I eat my next meal with more love? How do I interact even with people I don't know? with more love? You know, can I make eye contact with people? You had a similar discussion about love. And then the conclusion basically you came up with is that if I love, I will grieve. Sometimes myself included, you're, you're, you're trying to get the good side of something or someone, but at the same time, you don't want to deal with the bad side. You don't want to deal with the, the depressing side or the less perfect side of something, some situation or someone. But in the end, it's a package deal and you really have to accept both sides of it to truly live through that experience. So can you elaborate on what is, what do you mean by if I love, I will grieve? It's impossible to love and not grieve. It's just impossible. It's actually impossible to be alive and not grieve. It's like living through the daytime and expecting there to be no nighttime. Um, you don't know it's daytime unless there is a nighttime, right? Like we need the opposite to inform the other. So we need grief to inform our experience of love. Like we wouldn't really know what love felt like if it wasn't for grief and vice versa. So I've grief has been showing up a lot in my life lately. And again, I think it might be a middle-aged thing. I think it's just kind of something that happens. I, I talked to uh, my friends who are in their forties and one of my least favorite questions nowadays is how are you? I mean, what a horrendous question to have to answer. <laughs> and I am 
I am extremely blessed and extremely grateful. And at the same time, I feel incredible amounts of grief. Being able to hold multiple truths at the same time, I think that is the way to experience, again, the fullness of life. Like, I can't just be happy. I can't just be grateful. We have moments of it. We have moments of pure bliss and, oh my gosh, I'm never going to come down off of this high, but we always do. And then you feel the grief of that, right? Like, oh shoot, I'm not as happy as I was yesterday. Like, like I'm traveling right now and I'm not working. And so many people look at that life and go, oh my gosh, wow, I wish I could do that. You're so lucky, X, Y, Z. But you know, I see the flip side of that. Like, yes, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm living this way. And it's also, I also have a lot of grief over all of the lives that I'm not living. Right. There's, there's just infinite realities that we could be living. I don't have a husband. I don't have children, particularly in the Bitcoin community. That is something that comes up a lot. You know, there's this idea of, of male and female and traditional roles. And I'm not saying that I disagree with any of it. I actually, um, you know, I'm believe in it, but so I have grief for that, that maybe I've missed out on that in my life, but I don't know that I would be any happier or any more fulfilled if I had a husband and six children, I might be desperately unhappy, you know? So again, it's this, can I be grateful? Can I feel blessed? Yes. And can I grieve for the things that I feel like I might be missing out on or the things I don't have? Yes, you can. I do feel like a lot of the pain, the suffering that we go through in life are self-induced though. Because if you think about the grief of, oh, I could be living a separate life. I could be living a different life. I could be living millions of um, different lives. Then many people can get FOMO from that. Many people would sit in this grief and just that and think, oh, I wish I could do X, Y, Z. I wish I could be here, here and there, and then I will be happy. Or And then I will be able to finally do things that I was meant to do. But this might not be the case because just like you said, if, even if you feel like you might be missing out on something in concept, but if you were in reality in a, you know, alternative universe, is you actually living in that scenario? You may be miserably unhappy. You just never know. And you cannot torture yourself with these possibilities and unrealized potential and looking down to the moment that you're in right now. And I think there's a distinction you need to make as humans, as, as we humans, that there are certain griefs that are worth going through that are necessary in life that will give us growth and perspectives and um, show us how to be grateful for things that we do have in life. And there are also times where the grief or the uncomfortable or the fr friction comes from a sense of greed, comes from a sense of uh, that you're not centered enough to really seek within. And I think this is where the, the, per the perspective of death really comes in because we only live once. This is where you're right now. You either change it or you accept it. This is going to be the youngest day we're at in our lives today. That's one of my favorite things to think about. Like today is the youngest I will ever be again. And it's also the oldest yeah. I've ever been. <laughs> I think that's such a cool, just like today is a good day to die. I think that's another uh, really cool way to look at life as well. I think you're totally right in a lot of, a lot of life period comes down to how you navigate it. So you can allow this idea of death and grief to really um, keep you static and, and keep you kind of like paralyzed in this feeling of helplessness or desperation. Like it doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to die anyways. 
if I love someone, I'm going to lose them. I will grieve. So what is the point? You know, there can be this really like nihilistic sort of attitude to have around it. The way I, I look at it, like a little bit of a, a reframe for me is, can I accept that this is the truth? And because it's the truth, can I make peace with that truth? You know, can I make peace with the fact that I may never, uh, have a husband or I may never have children, you know, can I be at peace with that, but still hold space in my reality for those things to occur? And when we're thinking about what we, what we want in life, oftentimes what we want in the past doesn't necessarily translate what we want today. And similarly, what do we want today won't necessarily be the thing that we want in the future. How do you know? Like you, because you can't come back from the future and give the ultimate answer. This is what you want. And then you also share this notation of what matters in the end is what matters right now. So as individuals, when we're going through our days, how do we kind of strike a balance, I guess, between achieving what we want today and accepting there's, there might be a chance that today is a good time. Today is a good day to die versus really plan for the very last days when we're very, very old on our deathbed, looking back, we're a, more more of a low time preference is is necessary so how how do you think as individuals we can strike that balance i think it's important to recognize what is the motivation that is at the foundation of all of the things that you want so if you are you know if you're working and you think okay i i want to buy a house i want to have a car I want to travel to Italy, whatever it is that you want. What is actually motivating you to want those things? Is it, um, is it connection? Is it love? Is it joy? Like what is the emotion that is motivating you? I think if you feel motivated to achieve something that is deeper than just a superficial, oh, I'm doing this, you know, I I want a million dollar house because my neighbor just, they just paid a million dollars for their house. You know, maybe when people talk about having a midlife crisis, I think, I think a lot of, I think a lot of things begin to shift at midlife. And I can say that as someone who is at that point, I hope, unless, today is my day to die. Um, yeah, it's, it's, what is it that I really want? And then in my actions, what am I doing or what can I do to cultivate more of what it is that I want? And I think at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. again, as human beings, I think we want love and connection. And we have to recognize that sometimes other people's paths may not be my path. It's um, just like picking a partner. Your perfect partner is very likely not going to be my perfect partner. It's just uh, that simple. Um, so there's a, there's the element of really choosing for yourself. There's a strong element of don't trust, verify. And, and there's tons of links that we end up finding, I guess, um, in, in death of Bitcoin. Personally, like I'm going through a hard time this, this past year, just because like I have someone in my family that I'm very, very close to that are going through a chronic disease. Like, as part of the family, it's very, very hard to watch people you love suffer. And there's always the sense of, I guess, helpless, helplessness. I don't know how I can help in a way, because I'm not the one who's going through this, this experience. And I can, for someone who's not the person going through, I can only, I can only empathize so much because it's, it's not, it's, it's not in me. They themselves, they recognize that too. They recognize that I'm the one who's going through this. I'm the one who's going through this pain. And 
I appreciate your support and I know that you love me, but you're, you're not the one who's going through this. So they kind of trapped in their own suffering. They've almost lost the will to live because they think it's no point. I'm already here and my future is all, you know, I've, I'm under a death penalty and this can happen any day. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm under the gun. And then there's the flip side of, I want to live. This is not fair. I want to appreciate this beautiful life I have and live to the fullest. So what do you tell them? Or how can we, how can we help them? Or if one day we were in that situation, how should we approach this, this trickiness? I'll speak from, a, from the viewpoint of the, of the supporter or the caregiver. I think we, we inherently want to help. Like you were saying, we inherently, as humans, we want to help to ease the suffering of the people that we love. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to know how to do that properly. We want to be able to come in and offer something or tell that person something that is going to help them in their suffering. But we don't know what that thing is. And the more we think about trying to figure out what that thing is, the more we the, like the more we kind of pull back because the more inadequate we feel, the more we feel like I don't know what the right thing to do is. And now I feel like I'm in this place of being paralyzed and I can't do anything. It's up to this point, my most valuable perspective is ask the question. Instead of trying to have the answer for that person, ask them the question. And again, this is like, this is where vulnerability and honesty and truth come into the equation. We can walk into a room again, regardless of the situation, but we'll apply it to an end of life situation to have the courage to walk into a space with someone that we love and say, I love you. I want to help. What can I do? How can I help you? And they might not even know what that answer is. They might not even know what that answer is. And I think because it's also, you know, if we're finding ourselves in the role, if it's a parent that we are now supporting, I mean, that's a complete reversal of roles, right? Because our parents have been our caregivers our whole lives. They have never asked us for anything because they have been the ones providing everything. And I feel perhaps with women in particular, I can only speak from the viewpoint of a woman because that's what I am. So I think women in particular, because we have, because we are mothers, whether we are, you know, physical mothers or not, we, women have this nurturing, we are givers, right? We want to give of ourselves. We struggle with asking for what it is that we need. So if you ask someone the question, how can I help? They might not know how to answer that question. So I think it's important to ask the question and then just leave it to be okay with silence, to be okay with not knowing what the answer is. And again, just being able to speak the truth. If you can't tell me right now how I can help, I just want you to know that I want to help and I am here to support you in whatever way you would like to receive support. And maybe that means allowing them to take care of you <laughs> instead of what you think you think you're there to take care of them. Maybe what would actually make them feel better is to take care of you. Maybe that person wants to cook you a meal. Maybe that person just doesn't want to talk about being sick right now. You know, um, so asking, ask more questions. I really think that that is just so valuable again in all areas of life and being able again to have the courage to say, I don't know what to do. <laughs> 
I don't know how to help, but I want to help. And if you don't know how I can help you right now, then I will just, I'll just be here. Just expect that their answer may not be the thing that you thought it was going to be. It could be something just so simple. Maybe something that would help is going out to get them a Starbucks vanilla latte or, you know, like it it might not be this, this big thing or this huge gesture that you think it might be. I think, especially when it comes to chronic illness, I think sometimes people just don't want to think about being sick. So maybe they just need a little distraction from that and that's okay. I think a a big part of all of it in supporting someone who is sick or at their end of life is we, we have to drop our own agenda. We have to drop our own ideas of how we think things should go. I definitely have my ideas of how I would like my end of life to be. And they are probably completely different than, than my mom's, my dad's, any other person on this planet, right? Because I'm living my own experience here. So um, I think, yeah, the problem with wanting to help someone and not knowing how is that we probably have our own agenda about how we think things are supposed to go. And then if our agenda is met with any kind of resistance by the person we're trying to help, then we really pull back. You talk about the fear of regrets versus the fear of death. And oftentimes these are the same. And, you know, thinking about this, one of the key thing that can kind of throw us off and really start to get irritated and uncomfortable is the fact that we may have regrets in the old stage. We do have the realization that, oh shoot, I didn't live my life to the fullest. I didn't make certain decisions I should have made to fully reach my potential. And then they have that realization. And then what? How can they, or even can you bypass that regret that you didn't live your life to the fullest up until right now? That's a great question too. (laughs) These are some big, great questions. I appreciate (laughs) them. Um, Gosh. And again, I feel like there are so many ways to answer that question. And again, this is where that idea of um, holding multiple truths and this duality comes in. Okay. So on one hand, recognizing that I have regrets. So just like thinking about what it is that we want in life, when we look at the things that we regret, it's often, you know, a a situation or a relationship, but what is the underlying emotion? What is, did we cause someone pain? Did we reject somebody in a time of need? Did we not love someone as fully as we could have loved them? Like what, what is the emotion that underlies the thing that you regret? So that's the first thing I would, I would say. And then the second thing to contemplate is, is there anything I can do to change that? The answer might be yes, and it also might be no, (laughs) because especially when it involves other people, that person has to also be willing to meet you in the middle, right? So there might be something you can do about it. And if there is, the third thing I would think about is, is this really going to serve me? Is it really going to serve me to reach out to this person, apologize, offer forgiveness, etc.? Or is that actually going to cause more problems? And you may not know the answer to that question. So I think it's important before you before you just decide that you're going to mend these these um, you know these bridges that you have burned. <laughs> I think it's important to just to think about it for a little bit. Um, and then I think the, the final thing is we can forgive. We can love. We can actually reframe 
these things that we regret for ourselves without even involving the other person or the situation that existed in the past, right? Like there's a, a Hawaiian, I'm totally going to butcher the name, but it's, I think it's Ho'oponopono, something along those lines. And it's four things. It's, um, I think it's thank you, or I forgive you for, I forgive myself for, thank you for, and I love you for. And we can do those things without the other person even being in the room. And again, even if it doesn't involve a person, even if it's, I mean, I think a lot of the times we are our own harshest critic, right? So maybe you are beating yourself up for not taking that job or not going on that trip or whatever the scenario might be. Can we forgive ourselves? Can we thank ourselves for choosing the thing that we did choose? Can we say, you know, can we recognize that we did the best that we could at the time with what we knew how to do? My personal belief, and this helps to bring me a lot of peace in my life, is I, I don't actually believe that there are any wrong choices. I think that yeah. we are exactly where we need to be, whether we think that it's where we need to be or not. And I think part of that, again, is like it's the ego. Where should I be? What yeah. should I have done? Right. Versus if you trust in the universal plan, if you trust in God, again, like whatever your relationship is with consciousness or the cosmos, however you want to call it. Um, I think we are always exactly where we need to be and we have made all of the right decisions. There are no wrong choices. Um, maybe if you yeah. murder someone, that's a bad thing. <laughs> But um, <laughs> I feel personally that helps helps me to relieve a lot of pressure on myself in my life. Totally, I do. I do relate to that approach. I take a very similar approach of of viewing regrets because I live like my kind of personal model. Part of it, a big part of it, is I want to minimize regret. Like I don't really have regrets up to this point, and I know that very likely I'm not going to be able to keep this record forever because I'm only human, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, I can try to minimize regret by living every day to the fullest, by try to make the most of all the situations I find myself in. And basically it, it doesn't matter how things around me change because I, myself, I don't change. I just deal with it, bring my best and see what happens because I recognize most of the things in our lives are out of our control. And we as humans, we're, we're small and big at the same time. And if we dwell on the things that we cannot change and spend energy and effort into wishful thinking, I wish things could be this. I wish things could be that. I wish I lived a different life. Then it's, I, w I, I don't want to say not productive, but it is not productive because it's not going to change anything. So I, how I deal with this is, it is what it is up to this point. How, what can I do going forward? Always forward, always forward, always forward. Then you are taking the situation as is without questioning it, without doubting it. And then you just see what, how can I make the most of the situation I'm in, in this, in this very moment? And I think that helps. One of the approach that I take in life that also helped me now that I think about it also helps me to, to potentially deal with this is that I hold this mindset where I kind of bring a game gaming perspective come in life. Like I don't take things too seriously, almost like, um, and I have this play, I bring this playfulness that I'm like, I'm here to play mindset into pretty much everything I do. I'm here to have fun. Um, and how I, interpret life or how I approach life is that to use a metaphor that I use is that I feel like I'm given this free ticket to an amusement park just off the street randomly and then I came to this amusement park called life and this amusement park open opens until let's say 4 a.m in the morning 
And I can choose to live at 4 a.m. when it closes. I can choose to live at 2 a.m. before it closes. I can choose to leave at 12. I can even choose to leave at 10. Or I can just do one ride and figure out it's not for me, and then I'm out of here.、Um, and up to that point, it's just I'm merely going back to the life that I was at. And this experience itself is a gift that I get to. Experience to however long or short that I desire, and I think this helps me rationalize this in a way that I consider this a dream. I consider this is the the non reality part of it, and then after I die or after this world around me is gone, then I'm merely going back to where I was coming from. The permanence is there, and it's not—it's not in here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's so many different ways. <laughs> there's just so many different ways to look at life, to look at death, and and everything that we do in between.、Um, one of my favorite spiritual teachers is Ramdas, and he always says that if you have a guru or if you have a spiritual teacher that does not have a sense of humor. You need a new guru. Like this, this idea of having a sense of humor <laughs> to get through this whole experience and even to transition through death. Like a sense of humor is so important. And I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who was feeling guilty about not wanting to pursue his business anymore. He just wanted to pursue the thing that he loves, like the thing that he's passionate about. And he was feeling kind of guilty about that, and I said, "Well, maybe all we're here to do is have fun. Like we just, we just don't know. We don't know."、Um, so I think it's important just to allow whatever is happening, whatever your experience is, however you're managing to navigate it, just to allow things to. Come and allow things to be cyclical, and maybe there is a point in your life where you are working very hard towards something, and then maybe there's a point in your life when you are just enjoying, and both of those things are fine. Like we're allowed to do all of the things. Again, as long as, in my opinion, as long as we're not actively hurting other people, and if we're conscious of this idea that. This all ends, and really, what is the point? And I think the point is love. How can I do all things with more love? Going through this this practice of you know letting certain things go, and I and I I recognize myself couldn't couldn't letting something go, and then I I'm torn in a way that I feel like I'm trying to shake off something that's glued to my hand. I'm catching myself kind of physically also holding on to it at the same time. And then the the guide was telling me, "It's okay, not letting go. If you can't letting go, stop trying to let go. Is also a form of letting go." And then I was like, "Oh, you're right." And then I immediately basically calmed myself down. I'm like, "Okay, if that's that's acceptable, like I didn't have to put so much pressure on myself to to let go, even if I wanted to. If not, if it's not the good timing or I'm not ready, then I don't have to." So I guess it just really reminded me how things don't really have to be perfect. You know, we we obviously we want things to have good outcome. We have we want relationship to end on a good note or never end, right? Goes to eternity. But even if it doesn't, even if it ends badly or not to the extent that you you wish it to end, that's okay too. That's part of life. And the moment we stop beating ourselves up about it, the moment is the moment that we let go and allow things. To happen naturally, organically,、um, to allow these organic feelings to take over us, either as love or grief, it's all necessary and part of life. You're also a Bitcoiner. It may not be a, and as you said, the whole death doula thing and Bitcoin only happened in the past three years, and、um, I bet it's it's been a really powerful transformation for you personally. And you said Bitcoin are uniquely positioned to spearhead. The dishonesty movement. So, first, what is dishonesty movement, and why? How do you draw the line with Bitcoin? 
I became a death doula first. And then like two months later, I became a Bitcoiner and I became a Bitcoiner hard and fast. <laughs> like in the course of a week, <laughs> I went from not knowing virtually nothing to like being a Bitcoin maximalist. So, um, and at first I thought, okay, I need to keep these two things separate. I can't let my end of life clients know that I'm a Bitcoiner and I probably shouldn't talk about death with Bitcoiners. And it's kind of like you were saying earlier, like the more I tried and the more I tried to keep those two things separate, the more they just came together. And it, it got to a point where I just could not ignore the number of ways in which death and Bitcoin intersect. And I think for me, again, it's it goes back to this idea of truth. Death is a truth. There is no disputing there's no disputing it. You know, as as far as we know, no human has ever avoided death. And based on the evidence of the last 15 years, I also believe that Bitcoin is a truth based on mathematics and energy. And the reason why I think Bitcoiners are in a unique position to change this or even just to, to, to bring death into conscious awareness is because we understand scarcity. We understand scarcity. I think perhaps better than most people. We understand that scarcity is what makes something valuable and life time is our most precious asset. And Bitcoin is a very close second <laughs> to, to that. And again, what I think is so unique and altering for humanity is the fact that Bitcoin honors our time. Whereas fiat money completely disrespects our time. And, and I think it's, oof, I don't even know if I have the proper word for it, but I think fiat money is one of the most egregious crimes against humanity. Because when we talk about the regrets of the dying, there's, there's a book called the top five regrets of the dying. And the second one is people wish that they would have worked less what does that mean? If I want to work less, that probably means I want to spend more time with my family. I want to spend more time doing the things that I love. I want to spend more time giving back or being of service to other people. And again, fiat money makes that impossible. And not only does it make it impossible, it's actually making it more and more and more difficult because of the fact that the government can just print money out of thin air and our currency is constantly being devalued. Our time is, is being devalued. And I think I, I just find that so repulsive. I find it incredibly repulsive that the, the people that we, the people that work for us, <laughs> the government, the people that we employ, the people that we have voted for, are, are telling us blatantly through inflation, through this hidden taxation, through the theft of our time, that our time is not worthwhile, that we are not worthy, that all we are here for is to work harder and give away our life force energy. I look at death and Bitcoin both as these incredibly empowering tools for humanity. If we can all recognize as the finite nature of our time, but again, to have that, to have that representation of our life force energy be controlled by people who just print it out of thin air and basically say that that thing is worthless. Like that trans, when you think about it at a deeper level, that translates into our time is worthless. Our energy is worthless. Our life is worthless. And I do yeah. believe that 
most people aren't consciously aware of that, but I do believe that everybody feels it on some mm-hmm. level. And I think that that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of mental illness and a lot of drug addiction and just a lot of things that seem to really be going wrong with the world because we're intrinsically getting that message that, that are, that we are worthless. I see a lot of similarity between the approach to death and the approach to Bitcoin is that I feel like Bitcoiners are the people that recognize or appreciate the value of um, from the finite. And then they are able to find the timelessness, the eternity aspect of everything in the very concept of scarcity um, with so much more context of Bitcoin and death in mind. Nowadays, how do you view the concept of self-actualization? And how do you approach self-actualization? I went through this whole period of, you know, like reading all the self-help books and becoming a life coach and going to therapy and, you know, doing all these things to self-actualize and and be a better person. And there is a lot of validity to that. Like there is a, absolutely, I'm not saying that people should not do that. But I also think it's important to recognize, I think this idea of self-actualization can actually keep us really stuck sometimes. Like, oh, once I'm, once I've healed from my childhood trauma, I will be able to X, Y, Z. Or once I go on this retreat and figure out how to meditate properly, then I can do this thing I've always wanted to do. So I think it can really keep us stuck in this cycle of I'm not ready yet. I'm not good enough. I have more work to do. So I think there's a lot to be said for doing that work. And then also, again, just fully accepting yourself as you are. Maybe this is exactly who I'm meant to be. Maybe I am just as lovable with all of my flaws and all of the ways that I feel like I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm just as lovable like this as I am, you know, if I spent $10,000 and went to a Tony Robbins (laughs) retreat, right? Um, I think it's just important for both of those things. And I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves again to like be this person, to be this ideal version of ourselves that what like we've just created it in our minds. Like it's just, again, this idea that we are lacking in all of these different ways. So I need to do this work to be that person. And I think a really helpful reframe, and this is where Bitcoin enters the picture again our environment. And when I say our environment, I mean like our social structures, our food, our healthcare system, our government, everything around us is, I think, incredibly toxic. And it has become that way because of corrupted money. So here we are as human beings, placing these expectations on ourselves to become these self-actualized beings, to have all of the things we want to have, to do all the, all of the things that we want to do while at the same time, society is literally like poisoning us and (laughs) crumbling (laughs) to the ground. It's like, I often kind of use this metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Like I often use this metaphor, like we would never, plant a tree in a toxic waste dump and expect that that tree is going to grow up and bear fruit. Like those two things, just that doesn't make any sense. And yet as human beings, we expect ourselves to accomplish all of these great things while we're surrounded by toxicity and garb, like actual garbage. So I have found, again, a lot of peace, a lot of solace in Bitcoin, because I really do believe that Bitcoin helps to correct a lot of those societal issues that surround us. So it actually takes Mm -hmm. some of the pressure off of me to become this (laughs) 
ethereal, you know, <laughs> wise person, whatever. And it's like, oh, I can actually take the focus off of myself for a minute and I can put my focus on the world around me and how can I contribute to making the world around me better. And I really feel like Bitcoin is the very best tool for us to do that. And then as we help to fix the world around us, simultaneously, we are becoming better people. We are becoming more aligned with our morals and, you know, our own incentives and our own motivation for doing the things that we do are becoming more altruistic. Your points are echoing back to um, the point that someone else made on the show. I recently had Angelo Morgan Somers on the show who uh, kind of quit, quit, quit school at 12 years old. And then at 13 years old, he discovered Bitcoin. So he's been using Bitcoin as his focal point of self-education. And then after 10 years of being a Bitcoiner, he's still in his early 20s, which is kind of, you know, amazing. Um, but <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, so and then he was saying how he made this personal shift from the pursuit of happiness to the pursuit of being useful. And he said, um, surprisingly, when he was you know, going after happiness, it he he that was the period when he was the most depressed, and it's kind of like a cat chasing around her own tail and then cannot. And then the moment she he started to shift the focus into how can I offer value? How can I become useful to this world? The the happiness kind of came from a came as a byproduct almost. And here you're saying the 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 approach we take to self-actualize is actually to not be self-absorbent. Is actually to forget about ourselves for a minute and to think about others. And then maybe through the service of others then we can we actually actually do stand a chance of self actualization whatever that means right and i think i love how you're taking this kind of two two way approach into these questions because it's never these questions are never it's it's never a straight answer and there's no right or wrong and just like you said there's no wrong answer and i think for me you're absolutely right there, there are two sides of it the first side is that we before we self actualize it before we self actualize we need to practice self acceptance we need to accept for who we are and recognize that we're our own person and seek from within instead of seek from external environment accept ourselves for for who we are um I think it's the starting point for us to even go on the path of self self actualization. And then the the flip side of it is to actually do the work because deep down we know what to do. Accept who you are and be okay with it even if things are not perfect and then at the same time try to go beyond our self limitations. Like try to practice kindness, practice things that are outside of our comfort zone. And it definitely goes back to the notion of today is a good a good day to die because if we really do try our best every single day, then there's nothing to be afraid of because at the end of the day, we're just going back to where we came from. Things will never be perfect and they already are perfect, right? Like both of those, both of those things are true because what does perfect even mean? Does perfect mean a world where there is no death, where there is no suffering, where there is no grief, where there is no sadness. I don't think so. I think perfect includes all of those things. So if you're going for perfection, well, congratulations, you already have it. I have tremendous respect of, of what you do. Um, it's, it's not easy. I'm usually pretty early with all the preparation. This time I find myself dragging my feet of, of doing the, doing the research, listening to these interviews. Cause I myself have, I find my own resistance in prepping this interview. Well, I for sure will continue to use the mantra. And I think it's such a great reminder of what we have, what we can achieve, and that ultimately it's up to us. Find the eternity, the, the beauty of eternity in something that's finite. And I think this is something that Bitcoin and Des share and really unreach our experience as humans. Uh, what's the best way to stay close to your work? 
Probably the best way at this point is on Twitter or X, and I'm still making that transition between Twitter and X. Um, and on Instagram, I'm at death and Bitcoin on both of those things. What brings me joy is talking about Bitcoin and talking about death. So I'm always really happy to, to chat with people. Well, thank you so much, Irene, for taking the time and very valuable conversation for us to have. And I know I've certainly learned a lot from you and about this. Um, so any final remarks before we hop off for the audience of Live with Bitcoin? You know, as, as much as we are not in control of our experience, uh, we can control how we interpret it. So I think the subject of money and death can either be really scary and really disempowering, or it can be really beautiful and really empowering. So, and that is up to you as an individual. It's up to you how you want to approach it. So I know for me, I would rather go through life feeling empowered, um, and grateful as much as possible. So I choose to look at uh, money and death as something that is here to serve me and not the other way around. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Light with Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian Chang, and we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>